Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. 801-331-8113 is my phone number. And man, I'll tell you, I uh, got a good head of steam built up in the last hour, but uh, did not have a chance to finish the essay that I was sharing with you from Mike Meharry from the uh, Tenth Amendment Center. So we're going to dive into that and uh, talk a little bit about that in this hour. Have a lot of other great stuff ahead of us as well. But uh, for the time being, let's let's keep that momentum going. He was talking about how the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was signed into law back on September 18th of 1850. Why is the Fugitive Slave Act something that has any relevance in our day? Well, it's more the reaction to how individuals within the various non-slave states responded to the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. They nullified it. They fought it. And in many cases, you know, the juries would uh, would simply refuse to convict people who were being tried under it. I want to go back here for a moment here to. Uh, yeah, this is this is one of the things there. The, for instance, the Michigan Personal Freedom Act. Said you can't even hold. An accused fugitive slave in a state or local jail. And that prohibition on using state jails for holding accused fugitive slaves created a very significant logistical problem for slave catchers because there were no federal prisons at that time. And Mike Meharry points out Vermont also guaranteed jury trials for runaway slaves. Their legislature passed the habeas corpus law just two months after the enactment of the Fugitive Slave Act. As the Vermont digger put it, the law made it nearly impossible to enforce the federal law in Vermont. That Vermont statute required the state's attorneys to use all lawful means to protect, defend and procure to be discharged anyone who had been arrested or claimed as a fugitive slave. It guaranteed any accused fugitive a habeas corpus hearing before a state judge. Now, if the judge failed to release the accused, the defendant had the right to a trial by jury with the state covering the costs. And apparently Vermont passed an even more aggressive law back in 1858, just eight years later, an act to secure freedom to all persons within this state which it declared that any state reaching, I'm sorry, any slave reaching the state was deemed to be free and that anyone attempting to hold such would be subject to criminal kidnapping charges with a possible sentence of up to 15 years in prison. A Massachusetts act called for the removal of any state official who aided in the return of runaway slaves and it called for disbarment of attorneys assisting in fugitive slave rendition. Another section authorized impeachment of state judges who accepted federal commissioner positions, authorizing them to prosecute fugitive slaves. Quote, any person holding any judicial office under the Constitution or laws of this commonwealth who shall continue for 10 days after the passage of this act to hold the office of United States commissioner or any office which qualifies him to issue any warrant or other process under the Fugitive Slave Acts 
shall be deemed to have violated good behavior, to have given reason for the loss of public confidence and furnished sufficient ground either for impeachment or for removal by address. Wow. Talk about having some tools at your hand there. Meharry goes on to write, the act to protect the rights and liberties of the people of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts also provided criminal penalties for any person who removed a fugitive slave from the state without proving his or her servitude in a state court under the criteria set up by the act. No easy task. And like the Michigan Act, that Massachusetts law did not exempt federal agents. According to Mike Meharry, he says, after passage, there is no record of a fugitive slave ever being returned to Massachusetts. Now, the Ohio legislature took a slightly different tack. In 1857, it passed an act to prevent kidnapping. Forcibly or fraudulently carrying off a free black person or a mulatto would get you three to eight years of hard labor. Anyone trying to take an escaped slave out of Ohio was subject to the same charges if they failed to go to the proper court and prove ownership. Northern efforts to nullify the Fugitive Slave Act were so successful that several Confederate states specifically mentioned it in their declaration of causes for secession. South Carolina listed the Northern Nullification of Fugitive Slave Acts as its first complaint. Quote, an increasing hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery has led to a disregard of their obligations and the laws of the general government have ceased to affect the objects of the Constitution. The states of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa have enacted laws which either nullify the acts of Congress or render useless any attempt to execute them. So there are two very important lessons here that Mike Meharry identifies. Number one, and this is going to be a hard one for some folks, The federal government actively supported slavery. And I would add to that just as my own annotation here. All three branches of the federal government actively supported slavery right up to the very end of the war between the states. That should tell you a lot about about whether the war was truly about ending slavery or if it was about something else. But the bottom line is centralized power was not a friend to African-Americans. Secondly, Mike Meharry says state and local resistance can make federal laws nearly impossible to enforce. And I'm submitting for your consideration that uh, if the feds get froggy, oh, well, by gosh, we'll pass this, you know, anti-gun law or this, you know, gun control law. You can go ahead, but there's a pretty good bet that the states are going to nullify them. And even if the states themselves don't, you will see at the local level or at the county level, sheriffs and others who will say, we will not enforce those laws. Then what? Then you're stuck. You've got a law on the book that people do not respect, that people do not obey, And here's the really scary thing for those who are in power. That means their credibility takes a hit. Every time that law is unenforced, every time that law is disregarded, every time people with impunity just thumb their nose and go, ha ha, you can't make me do it. It undermines the authority of those who passed the law. 
So I I don't think it will necessarily this real reality would necessarily stop them from trying to pass some kind of gun control law. But I, for one, will be very satisfied to sit back and watch them make frustrated sounds. When it's clear that not only are the people not getting on board, but even the states and maybe even the municipalities or counties don't get on board. And we have an excellent piece of American history that shows us that sometimes this is good and, and sometimes it's absolutely necessary and proper. As Mike, or as, I'm, as Mike Meharry points out here, the enactment of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was an ugly moment in American history. And it certainly was a travesty for personal liberty. But the states that resisted that act were proof positive that we don't have to sit idly by when the federal government tramples our rights. And so hopefully this is planting that seed for you and I to where we understand that uh, we're not uh, we're not bound by bad laws either. We have a choice. Now I understand for some people this is a terribly subversive thing to say. How can you even suggest that if there's a law on the book we are not bound to to obey it? And my only suggestion is uh, if it's a good law, by all means, you should choose to obey it. And if it's a bad law, then by all means, you should choose to disobey it. You see the active word that I'm using here? Choose. Well, now, Brian, we shouldn't have to choose which laws we want to follow. Actually, you should. Because sometimes there are bad laws. If there's a law that said, turn in your neighbors if they're Jewish. Do you have to follow that law to be a good citizen? See, it's going to depend on who you ask. For the heel clickers, the answer is like, yes. Yes, a good citizen is found in their perfect obedience to whatever politician's words are written on a piece of paper. I would hope for the rest of us that we would go a little bit further and recognize that sometimes the, the lawful, the, the legal pursuit is the wrong thing. And in the case of people like Anne Frank, the folks who hid her and her family from the authorities, yeah, they were they were breaking the law. But I think most people would agree they were breaking it for the right reasons. That's why you need to have your conscience well-tuned, well-calibrated, so that you can make those kind of determinations with confidence. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. want to mention that uh, Ammo.com is one of our sponsors here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And um, I don't know if you, if you have followed this kind of thing. If you're, if you're somewhat new to the shooting sports or really haven't ever been into that, ammo can be kind of a mystery. And sometimes people are like, wow, this, this is kind of expensive. But I'm going to tell you, someone who's been a very long-time shooter and very staunch believer that ammo is a great thing because it converts money into skill, we are standing at a very unique place right now in terms of uh, the availability and the costs of ammo. I think right now we're at about a 12-year low 
in terms of its affordability. The selection has never been better. But that's something that can change very quickly. And we saw this back when Barack Obama was uh, elected in uh, 2008. I don't know how to describe it other than, you know, was it panic? Was it uh, there were a couple of high profile school shootings that followed uh, within his second term and people just cleared the store shelves. Why? Well, because the the Democrats are going to ban guns. Well, they're sure talking like they're going to ban guns. But here's the kicker. There's so much ammo available right now. And I'm talking good, first quality stuff. It's I mean, I, I think back 20 some years ago. And I had a favorite store, a favorite to pawn shop that I would go to, Statewide Pawn. Gordon, if you're hearing this, man, what a, what a great friend you have been. And, and you have done so much to, to get so many people you know, into the, into the shooting sports. But I used to love how you could pick up a you know, case of rifle ammo for a couple hundred bucks. Brothers and sisters, those days are pretty far behind. But the prices are still quite reasonable. It's all based on supply and demand. When when the demand is great, the prices go up. Right now, the demand is fairly low, which means the prices are very reasonable. If you've heard the term "buy it cheap and stack it deep," this is this is the time they're talking about. Now, I'm not trying to scare anybody or tell you. And by the way, you know now this, uh, you know there's all this political intrigue going on. Everything's going to change. My my point is simply, things don't stay the same forever. So if you're looking for an opportunity to strike while the iron's hot, do it now. Go to ammo.com, check out what they have. Rimfire, handgun, shotgun, rifle ammo, it's all there. Great essays and great articles available there as well, so you can stock up on your uh, philosophical ammo, if you will. But when you get to the checkout, make sure that you uh, use the little drop-down menu there when it asks, Is the, would you like to, to donate 1% of your purchase to these freedom-loving organizations to one of these freedom-loving organizations. And in this case, Loving Liberty is one of those freedom-loving organizations. And we would love it if you would think of us in those terms. Ammo.com All right, where to go next? This is an interesting article. This is from Collective Evolution. Not Not a site that I spend a ton of time on, but... This one caught my attention. Scientists show how gratitude literally alters the human heart and molecular structure of the brain. Does that surprise you? I mean, the gist here is that scientists have discovered feelings of gratitude can actually change your brain. It can also be a great tool for overcoming depression and anxiety. And scientists have discovered that the heart sends signals to the brain. So if you know somebody who's struggling with depression... Here's something you may want to send their direction. The article says gratitude is a funny thing in some parts of the world. Somebody who gets a clean drink of water, some food, or even a worn out pair of shoes can be extremely grateful. Meanwhile, somebody who has all the necessities is complaining about something. I know that sounds more like me. I got to work on that. So what we have today is what we once wanted before, but there's a lingering belief out there that obtaining material possessions is the key to happiness. Now, sure, this may be true, but that's a temporary kind of happiness. And the truth is that happiness is an inside job. Boy, I tell you, my kids uh, yesterday put on um, Netflix. At least I think it was Netflix. Anyway, they were watching 
they're watching some old uh, reruns of uh, Hoarders. I've never really sat and watched that show start to finish. And I think I've realized why. I've never really gotten into that show. It is that that show is so steeped in sadness. And in every case, you look at these people whose homes just become like a, a, a literal trash dump. They can barely even live in there. Sometimes it's not even inhabitable. But in every case, these people were, were trying to fill something. There was something broken in their lives. They were trying to fill that space and they would just collect stuff. And, you know, it's sometimes it's the tragedy of, well, you know, this is my husband died of a heart attack in this house. And I mean, for crying out loud, eight years after his death, his suit pants are still sitting on the dresser. It's like she just couldn't bring the wife couldn't bring herself to put away her husband's suit pants that he would never be coming home to wear again. Her son committed suicide in, in the bathtub. And so she, she can't clean the bathroom. She can't, you know, nothing's the same. It's, it, it's, anyway, the gist of what I saw was there was a lot of very sad people trying to fill something. And so when this article talks about that belief out there that, well, material possessions are the key to happiness. No, not really. In fact, as you, as you see on, on some of these episodes of Hoarders, they just become kind of a stopgap, but the unhappiness remains. So the bottom line is, your happiness is a matter of perspective. And in a world where we're constantly made to feel like we are lacking, or that somehow you need something more if you want to be complete, it can be difficult to achieve or experience actual happiness. Many of us are always looking toward external factors in order to experience joy and happiness, when it's really all related to internal work. And this is something science is beginning to back up as well, as shown by research coming out of UCLA's Mindfulness Awareness Research Center. According to them, having an attitude of gratitude changes the molecular structure of the brain. It keeps gray matter functioning, it makes us healthier and happier, and when you feel happiness, the central nervous system is affected. You're more peaceful. You're less reactive, less resistant. Now, that's a really cool way of taking care of your well-being. Now, there are many studies that show people who count their blessings tend to be happier. They tend to have less depression. For one study, researchers recruited people with mental health difficulties, including people suffering from anxiety and depression. And that study involved nearly 300 adults who were randomly divided into three groups. It came from the University of California, Berkeley. All of these groups received counseling services, but the first group was also instructed to write one letter of gratitude to another person every week for three weeks, where the second group was asked to write about their deepest thoughts and feelings about negative experiences. The third group did no writing activity. What did they find? Well, compared to the participants who wrote about negative experiences or who only received counseling, those who wrote gratitude letters reported significantly better mental, better mental health for up to 12 weeks after the writing exercise ended. And the study says this suggests that gratitude writing can be beneficial, not just for healthy, well-adjusted individuals, but also for those who struggle with mental health concerns. 
In fact, it seems practicing gratitude on top of receiving psychological counseling carries greater benefits than counseling alone, even when that gratitude practice is brief. Now, apparently there are four insights that researchers from Berkeley developed here or that they identified about uh, the psychological benefits of gratitude. They said gratitude unshackles us from toxic emotions. Gratitude helps even if you don't share it. Gratitude's benefits take time and practice. So if you start this, uh, you may not feel it right away. But they concluded gratitude has lasting effects on the brain. We'll come back to this after these messages. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I don't know. It could be my imagination, but I think I sound a little more chipper than I did when I started out this morning. That's probably the cold medication kicking in. But uh, yeah, I'm still on the mend. Ain't no cold like a summer cold. But I am grateful. Huh? See how I'm putting this into practice? Grateful to be able to breathe (laughs) once again through my nose. And did not have a sore throat. On the other hand, it makes me a little bit sad because I'm watching uh, at least one of my boys going through exactly what I was going through last week. It's like, sorry, Forrest, I gave you that cold. Where were we? Ah, yes, we were talking about how gratitude, scientists say, literally alters the human heart and molecular structure. Now, you probably understand that, uh, you know, gratitude unshackles us from toxic emotions. It helps even if you're not sharing it with people. It takes some time to feel the effects, but uh, it does have lasting effects on the brain. Now, in a world where emotions aren't really taught in school and the importance is put on striving for high grades, it's not abnormal to have difficulty in feeling grateful. And this article says it's especially understandable if you've been brought up in the Western world, which is full of consumerism and competition, a world where we're constantly made to feel like we're lacking. So we need to strive more. Well, participants were asked to to rate how grateful they felt toward the person who gave them money and how much they would want to pay it forward to a charitable cause, as well as how guilty they would feel if they didn't help. And then they were given questionnaires to measure how grateful they felt in general. This is what the study found. We found that across the participants, when people felt more grateful, their brain activity was distinct from brain activity related to guilt and the desire to help a cause. More specifically, we found that when people who are generally more grateful gave more money to a cause, they showed greater neural sensitivity in the medial prefrontal cortex which is the brain area associated with learning and decision-making. This suggests that people who are more grateful are also more attentive to how they express gratitude. Huh. And the article says it's also interesting to note that a recent study just discovered a brain network that gives rise to feelings of gratitude. Now, that study could spur future investigations into how these building blocks transform social information into complex emotions. So what about the heart? 
I mean, the work and research uh, that we've talked about so far has been great, but where do we actually experience those feelings? They're clearly not a product of the brain. They're products of our consciousness. And when we feel them, the brain responds. So researchers are now discovering that the heart also responds and that it might actually be the heart that's responsible for sending these signals to the brain. So you've got a group of prestigious, internationally recognized leaders in physics, biophysics, astrophysics, education, mathematics, engineering, cardiology, biofeedback, and psychology, among other disciplines, who've been doing some brilliant work over at the Institute of Heart Math. And their work, like many others, has proven that when a person is feeling really positive emotions, things like gratitude or love or appreciation, the heart beats out a different message which determines what kinds of signals are sent to the brain. Not only that, but because the heart beats out the largest electromagnetic field produced in the body, the Institute has been able to gather a significant amount of data. And according to Roland McCready, PhD and Director of Research at HeartMath, emotional information is actually coded and modulated into these fields. So by learning to shift our emotions, we are changing the information coded into the magnetic fields that are radiated by the heart and that can impact those around us. We are fundamentally and deeply connected with each other and the planet itself. This is something I would love to. I may have to send a copy of this to my friend Ralph DeLugas, who hosts Stranger Than Fiction every Friday afternoon at one o'clock Eastern, one o'clock uh, Mountain Time, rather, here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. I'd like to get, get Ralph's take. Because Ralph's got a pretty good grasp of that uh, that place where science and spirituality meet. I'd just like to hear what he would have to say. Oh, by the way, another great point made by the Institute. They said one important way the heart can speak to and influence the brain is when the heart is coherent. Experiencing stable sine wave like pattern in its rhythms. When the heart is coherent, the body, including the brain, begins to experience all sorts of benefits. Among them are greater mental clarity and ability, including better decision making. Well, that's good news. Anyway, I'll post this I'll post this article in the show notes with the podcast. But the takeaway here is that emotions and other factors associated with consciousness have the power to transform our inner world in ways we don't fully understand yet. These findings show how consciousness can actually transform the physical or material world, and that's huge. It validates the idea that if we can change our inner world through gratitude, empathy, compassion, and meditation, rather, (laughs) interesting interesting Freudian slip, we can make our outer world more peaceful as well. And from here I want to transition into The opposite of gratitude, envy, and a marvelous essay from Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. His show, The Reed Hour, can be heard Tuesday afternoons at one o'clock Eastern, one o'clock Mountain Time, rather, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. His essay is Envy is the Root of Many Modern Evils. Larry Reed says to dislike a person because of the color of his skin is racism. To scorn someone because of her same-sex preference is homophobia. To disdain for reasons of gender is sexism. To frown upon people because of their foreign origins is xenophobia. Such manifestations of bigotry to a person of peace, tolerance, and logic are shameful and indefensible. 
Why? Because color, sex, sexual orientation, and national origin have nothing to do with the content of one's character. That's one reason. Another reason is that humans are not a blob. Every human is a unique individual. If one is to be judged, he should be judged by his choices and behavior, that is, by his own sins and virtues, and not by the sins and virtues of others who simply share some accidental resemblance to him. And the third reason is that finger-pointing takes the spotlight off self-improvement. Scapegoating isn't a pathway to achievement for persons or for nations. It's what losers do. Now, Larry Reed says, but suppose you despise and you seek to punish an entire class of people because they're rich or successful. And he asks the question, is that bigotry or is that the foundation of a political campaign? Well, sadly, the answer is it's both frequently second only to Donald Trump, a specific individual whose sins and virtues we can largely identify and hold him responsible for the number one punching bag. Every political season is the rich. They are monotonous, monotonously demonized by candidates who vie for your vote and affection and count on your ignorance and myopia. Now, Larry says it would be both unpopular and stupid to express a dislike for the poor as an income um, income group. We all know that the poor are there that among the poor, there are both good and bad people. And some are poor through little fault of their own and possess strong personal character. Others are poor because of bad choices and lousy behavior rooted in rotten character. Now, we surely want to determine the difference and render our judgments and reactions accordingly. Listen to presidential debates carefully, and you'll easily see a very different perspective with regard to the rich. Income bigotry is on full and proud display. And Larry Reed says candidates don't define the rich precisely, but they do hope that you'll think you're not among them. You're supposed to be the victim of the rich so the politician can be your savior. The demagogue doesn't say he wants to sift the good rich from the bad rich and treat them accordingly. He wants to go after them all just for their richness. Now, you can be rich because you stole something or used your political connections to get special favors, or you could be rich like most of the rich. That is because you created and built something, worked long, hard, and smart for what you have, added enormous value to society, invested resources wisely, or just entertained 50,000 happy-paying customers many times at concerts. Doesn't matter which. When When New York Mayor Bill de Blasio declares with fire in his eyes that he will tax the hell out of the rich... He means all of them. His competitors, as well as large swaths of their audiences, cheer because of the the perverse satisfaction they derive from just thinking about the punishment. Suggest that taxing the hell out of anybody might be counterproductive to philanthropy, job creation, or economic growth? And you'll quickly be the skunk at the garden party because it's the punishment that matters, not the outcomes. Now, we're going to have to take a quick break here, but we'll come back to Larry Reed's essay. Envy is the root of many modern problems. I think Larry's got a really solid take on this, and I think he's got the politicians absolutely dialed in as far as how this is one of their great boogeymen. This is one of the reasons we're supposed to shut up and fall in line. Well, the rich are taking advantage of you. And yet it's... it's stunning to realize how quickly you and I cross into the realm of the rich. 
You don't have to make a lot of money to be considered such and be ripe for fleecing by these politicians. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm sharing with you an essay from Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. Envy is the root of many modern evils. I don't disagree with his uh, with his assessment here. He talks about uh, how this is the root by welcoming us, welcoming us to the ugly world of envy, defined by philosopher Immanuel Kant as a propensity to, be, to view the well-being of others with distress even though it does not detract from one's own. Kant says it is a reluctance to see our own well-being overshadowed by another's because the standard we used to see, the standard we use to see how well off we are is not the intrinsic worth of our own well-being, but how it compares with that of others. It aims, at least in terms of one's wishes, at destroying others' good fortune. Ooh, that's a, that's a pretty stinging... Summary of what envy is, and Larry Reed points out, envy's almost as old as the world itself. That was Cain's motive for killing Abel. Professor, Professor Paul Fairfield of Queen's University in Ontario describes it as an animosity that eats away at you from the inside out and that hides itself behind a dubious morality. And it comes in several shades. The less harmful version, for example, is when you count the other guy's blessings instead of your own, but try to attain them for yourself peacefully by trade or emulating the decisions of the successful. A more malicious type takes this form. You despise someone for who he is or for what he has and take personal delight in punishing him for it in the hope that you'll benefit in one way or another. Maybe you'll get some of his stuff or attain power by vilifying him. Now, Larry Reed says the worst kind of envy shows up when you take action to make sure that no one can ever possess what the successful person has because you believe equality in misery is more virtuous than inequality, period. He says perhaps the best 20th century book on the subject was the Austrian-German sociologist Helmut Schech's Envy. A Theory of Social Behavior, which appeared in the late 60s. Scheck noted that to claim human humanitarian motives when the motive is envy and its supposed appeasement is fa- a favorite rhetorical device of politicians. It's a tactic that politicians have been using for ages, profoundly evidenced at least as far back as the sad final decades of the old Roman Republic. And Larry Reed says, I know of no moment in history in which the encouragement or practice of widespread envy produced anything but a bad outcome. And he says, for good reasons, it's counted as one of the seven deadly sins. It builds nothing up but concentrated state power. It tears everything down from the object of envy, in other words, the rich, to the very souls of the envious themselves. Now, Larry Reed says, you don't have to take his word for it. Several thousand years ago, the tenth of the Ten Commandments warned of envy's close relative, coveting. Many biblical passages from both the Old and New Testament caution against it, including Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Or Ecclesiastes chapter 30, verse 24. Envy and wrath shorten the life. 
Now, Larry Reed says what follows is a representative sampling of historical wisdom on the matter from across the centuries since. The pre-Socratic Greek philosopher Democritus noted that a free and peaceful society would actively seek to discourage envy. Quote, the laws would not prevent each man from living according to his inclination unless individuals harmed each other, for envy creates the beginnings of strife. Seneca the Younger was a prominent Roman Stoic thinker and statesman of the first century A.D. And Larry Reed says he was well aware that envy played a key role in the demise of the Republic during the previous century. Quote, it is the practice of the multitude to bark at eminent men as little dogs do at strangers, end quote. Larry Reed says envy generates an internal struggle in three stages, according to the 13th century's St. Thomas Aquinas. In the first stage, the envious person attempts to defame another person's reputation. In the second stage, the envious person receives joy at another's misfortune. That's if his defamation succeeds, or grief at another's prosperity if it fails. But the final stage sees envy turned into hatred, because sorrow causes hatred. Italian poet and author of the Divine Comedy, Dante, who I don't even know how to say Dante's last name, I've always just called him Dante, Dante Alighieri, saw envy as a desire to deprive other men of theirs. In his purgatory, the envious are punished by having their eyes sewn shut with wire because they gained sinful pleasure from seeing others brought low. Leonardo da Vinci, the quintessential Renaissance man, wrote, Envy wounds with false accusations, that is, with a detraction, a thing which scares virtue. In the 17th century, the English essayist Francis Bacon condemned envy as an enervating attitude that leads directly to deplorable actions. He said, A man hath that hath no virtue in himself ever envieth virtue in others. For men's minds will either feed upon their own good or upon others' evil, and who wanteth the one will prey upon the other, and whoso is out of hope to attain another's virtue will seek to come at even hand by depressing another's fortune. I know the Germans even have a word for that, the schadenfreude about taking joy in other people's misfortune. Not sure that's a good thing to engage in. As Larry Reed points out, a hundred years later, the English theologian Robert South echoed Francis Bacon, saying of covetousness, we may say that it makes both the Alpha and Omega in the devil's alphabet, and that it is the first vice and corrupt nature which moves, and the last which dies. At about the same time, the famous playwright Joseph Addison observed that envious people are usually unhappy people. The condition of the envious man is the most emphatically miserable. He's not only incapable of rejoicing in another's merit or success, but lives in a world where all man, wherein all mankind are in a plot against him. End quote. When the Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville toured America in the early 1830s, he found that one of the country's strengths was that we were focused on building things and people up instead of tearing either down. And prophetically, he predicted that if envy took root, the result would be suicide. De Tocqueville said, quote, I have passionate love for liberty, law, and respect for rights. Liberty is my foremost passion, but one also finds in the human heart a depraved taste for equality, which impels the weak to want to bring the strong down to their level 
and which reduces men to preferring equality in servitude to inequality in freedom. He says equality is based on envy. It signifies in the heart of every Republican, nobody is going to occupy a place higher than I. End quote. Theodore Roosevelt regarded himself as a progressive of his day in the late 19th and early 20th century. But he understood then what most progressives today do not, namely that envy is the root of much evil. Teddy Roosevelt said, quote, the, probably the greatest harm done by vast wealth is the harm that we of moderate means do ourselves when we let the vices of envy and hatred enter deep into our own natures. Philosopher and novelist Ayn Rand was an avowed atheist who would never argue that envy is evil because God says so, but she certainly regarded envy as evil and destructive, equating it with hatred of the good, by which she meant a hatred of a person for possessing a value or virtue one desires as uh, regards rather as desirable. Quote, if a child wants to get good grades in school but is unwilling or unable to achieve them and begins to hate the children who do, that is hatred of the good. If a man regards intelligence as a value but is troubled by self-doubt and begins to hate the men he judges to be intelligent, that is hatred of the good. And Larry Reed says Robert Barron is an auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles and founder of the popular Catholic ministerial organization Word on Fire. In his view, envy is a capital sin. It refers to the sadness, to sadness at the sight of another's goods and the immoderate desire to acquire them for oneself, even unjustly. When it wishes grave harm to a neighbor, it is a mortal sin. St. Augustine saw envy as a diabolical sin. In Augustine's words, from envy are born hatred, detraction, calumny, joy caused by the misfortune of a neighbor, and displeasure caused by his prosperity. So here's the take home. Lawrence W. Reed says it would be easy to supply the reader with a thousand more quotes on the subject of envy. The difficult thing would be to find one that defends it. And he says the irony is this universally condemned. Envy is nonetheless widely, nonetheless widely practiced. In fact, he says Ayn Rand christened our times as an age of envy. So Larry Reed's advice is search your conscience. If you find envy within it, expunge it before it does its awful work. I think envy is one of those things that's closely related to status, in which you have to be comparing yourself to others at all times, either to make sure that, yes, I'm better than them, or this proves they're better than me. Either way, that's a really destructive mindset. Credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.